0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. I'm Linda Mottram. As hospitals in Ukraine are bombed and the death toll rises, should, could Vladimir Putin face the International Criminal Court?
1: Obviously, it costs money to investigate and prosecute these crimes. It takes a long time. It's a difficult process, but it's a very important weapon in the armoury of international law and the international order.
0: Well, shock turned to anger in flood-affected areas of the Australian East Coast this week. About the slow pace of the response and a short visit from the Prime Minister, which many locals thought was too little, too late. We need help!
1: We need help! We need help! We need help! help. People in Lismore are very passionate about climate. Obviously we're very tired and affected and emotional and angry, so... Look, I have experience in disasters and I I understand why there have been delays, but there have been delays. And as much as it's, you know, in real time, it's only been a little bit over a week, it feels like a lifetime to many of us.
0: Communities in northern New South Wales, which were hardest hit, pride themselves on their community spirit. But they also say they can't do it alone. The federal and state governments say support is coming, And the need is huge. Nearly 10,000 homes are declared uninhabitable or damaged. That is expected to rise. But as communities start to contemplate rebuilding, there has been frustration too. At comments from disaster relief boss Shane Stone, who questioned whether people can continue to live in flood-prone spots.
1: We had, I think it's Shane Stone, talking about where we do live. And he's got a point that you're building on a floodplain now... It's it's madness, but a lot of these cities and towns have been here 100 years. And i also say to, to Shane Stone, what are you going to do when the next cyclone flattens Darwin or Cairns or Intersvale? Are you going to say to those people, you shouldn't be living there?
0: There is now some limited financial support to sustain people in the short term, but calls have grown very loud after multiple natural disasters for more funding to help communities adapt. Well, Barbara Norman is the Chair of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Canberra. She says Australia used to be a world leader in climate adaptation, but not anymore.
2: We had the National Climate Commission, which then was abolished in 2013 with the change of government. We had uh, a national flagship in uh, CSIRO on climate adaptation. I was on their National Advisory Committee at the time. And uh, due to cuts by the subsequent governments, that was abolished. We had a national adaptation research facility based at Griffith University, funded by the national government uh, back then, and that also was abolished.
0: Right. So on a practical level, what were we doing when that edifice, that structure you've described was in place at the time?
2: Well, there was a very successful program on a practical level. It was called, and you can tell by the words, it's called the Local Adaptation Pathways Programme and it funded uh, directly from the national government to local councils, and it went right through to practical projects. And it led to some really excellent work around the country. Um, the nine councils from uh, Mandra down to uh, Esperance, for example, uh, working together on uh, sea level rise and climate change impacts, coastal erosion, did some excellent work there. Uh, look, I could go right around the country. And again, that was abolished. Uh, so, What we've really got now is a lot of community groundswell coming through. That's the positive side. And you can see that in the post-disaster activity and, and some of the coastal communities. But there's nothing for them to hang on to. There's no support, equal support, coming from the national levels.
0: But on the eve of the Glasgow conference last year, Barbara, Australia announced its National Climate Resilience and Adaptation Strategy. Isn't that designed to deal with these issues?
2: Well, one would have hoped so, but it was definitely a missed opportunity. One, it had no funding. Two, it set up an office with no funding or hasn't actually set the office up. It made an announcement to set one up. Said they would share more data and work with partners. But but actually nothing's happened and there is no funding. So, uh, again, um, you could, I think you, people could be forgiven to be developing a slightly cynical view about these uh, national announcements. Nice. to talk about resilience but nothing's happening underneath, there's no action.
0: So when we look at Lismore um, and surrounds these extraordinary floods, the second major flood in five years there, it's a difficult conversation, but there are people in that area now talking about the need to move the town. It's such a sensitive idea and it can get caught up in blaming people for where they live, which is obviously not helpful, but is it still a conversation that we need to have?
2: Well, it's a very sensitive conversation, as you say, and uh it's not helped by the politics sometimes. Uh, but it is a conversation that we do need to begin, and most importantly, we do need to begin with the affected communities. It's a community conversation that needs to happen. It needs funding and resources to enable that to happen properly and then uh, a possibility of looking at a whole suite of options. People kind of grab these, you know, sudden solutions in the middle of a crisis that's not a good idea, you know, calm minds clear minds people around the table working out what are the realistic options real options for people and they can be from simple adaptations to the existing built environment right through to enabling of people to uh, move into a better situation It has happened before successfully in this country. Uh, In Grantham, in Queensland, That was flooded three times in as many years and the community itself decided to relocate and they were helped by the Queensland Reconstruction Authority. I think that was a very successful process, actually, and the community have documented that and they've said that themselves. But I guess it's very important. Every community is different. The options will be different, uh, but they, at the moment, there's nothing, again, there's no, no program, no process, no funding to support the community to get back on its feet and work out what those realistic options are.
0: And it's difficult, isn't it, when, um, when you start talking about these things because no one wants their houses and their land to suddenly be worthless, so there's that element as well.
2: Of course, of course. Um, and uh, we've seen that with uh, the bushfires as well um, in 2019-20 and obviously before that uh, where people have just left. <laughs> it's yeah. just just empty blocks, and and the system really isn't working. And that's where bodies like the Insurance Council of Australia become critical. But really, you need a whole range of skills around this, and that's why I say a kind of considered. Uh, round table discussion sounds a bit academic. I don't mean it in an (laughs) academic sense. I mean in a very real sense. That uh, you have the building and construction industry there. You have the insurance industry there. You have the built environment professionals there, the architects, the planners, the landscape architects, the urban designers, and most importantly, you you have the community leaders there. Then we can start to have that conversation and then start to work out the options but look the immediate priority is helping people in need right now and this is down the track but hopefully not too far down the track
0: do about these rivers that you know once upon a time could spread out across plains as much as they wanted to whenever the weather you know dropped a lot of water but now there are you know we we channel them a lot and we build our towns around them and we channel them because we want to use them for various things but then suddenly they become inherently dangerous I mean Mm. what do you think about that?
2: Well, certainly uh, we talk about there's a couple of things there and certainly from my own experience and an urban planning background there's two aspects there's good whole of catchment management practices so you're not just you know we hear people say oh we need dams we need this we need that We may or we may not, but unless you look at the whole catchment and all the measures you can take in mitigating that uh, and managing the water, if you like, we need to look at all that that whole scenario. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also water-sensitive urban design, and you'll see actually some very good practices of this in our cities in Australia. And I know, uh, for example, our neighbouring countries look at us for our excellence in this space in water-sensitive urban design. So you'll see gradually those concrete channels being transformed back to nature and uh, wetlands being created so you can retain naturally the water as it goes down those streams. So yes, we have the expertise uh, and it needs to be tapped into.
0: So we've seen this week that the vast majority of the money Australia spends on disasters is spent after the event, not in the planning. How do we shift that?
2: Yeah, it's extraordinary, really. And um, We've had the Productivity Commission report that made that uh, conclusion. It's 97% being spent in the disaster in the aftermath and only 3% in the preparing better for the future which is completely out of whack. Honestly, we need really significant institutional reform mm. because the emergency management response is clearly not working. It's, it's
0: very frustrating. So, Barbara, what new ways of thinking, new tools, could we be using to better plan for the future?
2: Well, I think one of the most important tools we could be using and has often been used in national security, for example, is scenario planning. And so um, you will have all heard in the fires and then uh, this week as well, People saying, we never thought it could happen like this. Mm. And I think uh, we really now need to be using those tools in relation to natural disasters in this country much more. So when someone says to you, let's plan for one metre sea level rise, for example, or one and a half, and someone says, oh, that's never going to happen here, just do the work. Mm. <laughs> do the work. The national agencies, I, I think, should be helping with all of that and then at least and do it with the community not in the middle of a crisis, after the crisis, and then work through those scenarios and push the boundaries right out, much further than you think will happen, because at least you will have done the work and at least you'll be prepared with the community to respond when it does happen.
0: Barbara Norman from the University of Canberra. Well, the horrors in Ukraine, its cities under Russian siege, appear limitless. A Russian strike on a children's and maternity hospital in the eastern city of Mariupol has been described as a barbaric and depraved use of force against civilians. I cannot realise why it's necessary for Russian troops to dis- to, to destroy hospital.
2: Believe me, if, if it's prolonged
3: this way, yes, you will see. They will close the sky but will lose millions of people.
0: Russia has been accused of deliberately targeting civilians as they try to flee. Russia's president Vladimir Putin has repeatedly denied his forces are targeting civilians, but on Sunday the world saw the truth for itself. <laughs>
3: I ran and I saw this family splayed out and I saw these little moon boots and puffy coat and and I and I just thought of my own children, of course, and I and I thought, you know, it's disrespectful to take a photo, but I have to take a photo. This is a war crime.
0: Well, this week, the Chief Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Karim Khan, announced an investigation into Russian President Vladimir Putin over possible war crimes in Ukraine. Dr Gideon Boas is a barrister, a criminal law expert, and a former senior legal officer with the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. He was a senior legal advisor in the trial against former Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic.
1: There's been a number of reports of attacks on civilians, both in the context of bombing of buildings. Uh, There was a most recent report has been the bombing of a maternity hospital in Mariupol. Also attacks directed at civilians attempting to flee and attacks on uh, residential apartments. All of these are, if they're uh, accurate, are attacks that are either directed at the civilian population or they are attacks which are indiscriminate in nature and would therefore potentially constitute the commission of war crimes. Right.
0: And can I get to the question of genocide? Because in the case of the bombing of the maternity hospital in Mariupol, the Ukrainian president has said it's evidence of genocide. I'm not sure whether you want to comment on whether that is specifically, but but is genocide likely to be involved here?
1: Uh, look, the, the use of the term genocide is problematic. It, it invariably is raised by the victims of um, attacks of this nature. It's often raised by both sides uh, in a conflict. Um, it is uh, prescribed by international law to relate to very specific circumstances. And one of the requirements is that there be a substantiality in the nature of the attack upon the civilian population so there really has to be an endeavor to extinguish the biological physical existence of a particular uh, group that's protected under the Geneva uh, sorry under the genocide convention
0: mm. so we see the international criminal court investigating war crimes in Ukraine after Russia's invasion. What what does successful prosecution depend on?
1: Well, the first thing is the court's got to have jurisdiction and it's been given jurisdiction by the Ukraine making declarations. Ukraine's not a member state of the ICC, neither is Russia, but the Ukraine has made declarations uh, enabling the court to investigate and prosecute crimes committed on its territory. That means that the prosecutor can now investigate those crimes and he's made a statement a couple of weeks ago saying that he's commenced that process. If he identifies the commission of war crimes or crimes against humanity or indeed genocide, he can then seek arrest warrants for particular individuals who identified as perpetrators of those crimes. The most obvious and one of greatest interest is whether or not Vladimir Putin himself might be indicted.
0: Mm. You worked on the trial of former Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic, who was charged with war crimes, among other things. There have been comparisons made by some between Milosevic and Putin, most recently by Boris Johnson. Do you see parallels between the two?
1: Well, only in the sense that they're both uh, dictatorial in their in their behaviour, autocratic in their behaviour. Uh, interestingly, I, I think Putin's more of a uh, more ideologically driven than uh, Milosevic was. Milosevic was the ultimate opportunist. Uh, I'm not sure that he was really dedicated to the concept of a greater Serbia, which he rode the wave of. But Putin, I think, is very much motivated by an ideological concern about the state of Russia, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and Russia's status in the world order. So, whilst there are similarities, I think there are material differences, which actually make Putin far more dangerous than Milosevic, in my view.
0: Mm. Milosevic was a former head of state by the time he went on trial. What precedent is there for a sitting head of state being charged with war crimes?
1: It's happened a couple of times in recent years. The ICC has indicted the former president of the Ivory Coast, Laurent Bagbo, that unfortunately one might say ended in an acquittal in 2016. They've also indicted al-Bashir, who is the president of Sudan, for crimes genocide committed in Darfur. He hasn't yet been produced to the court, but that arrest warrant is outstanding. And there was an indictment for issued for um, Libya's Uh, president as well. But unfortunately, as we know, Gaddafi was killed um, before he could be arrested and tried. So there is actually a fair bit of modern precedent, at least for charging uh, heads of state. Um, The the next question, of course, is how difficult it is to successfully prosecute somebody who is so remote from the perpetration of the commission of war crimes or crimes against humanity or indeed genocide.
0: Well, indeed. I mean, one doesn't imagine that Vladimir Putin would be hopping up to the court in The Hague to, uh, to face his moment. So if he was to be charged um, and he would simply just ignore that, I think we can safely assume, what sort of consequences are there? Doesn't this make it a, a, a rather um, weak process?
1: You, you've got to play the long game in international criminal law. And I think there is a profound impact for Putin and Russia of him being indicted by the International Criminal Court. It's a normative process. It it casts him as a villain. It removes, potentially removes Russia from the position it currently holds as a great power, a superpower and puts it in the category of a pariah state because its head of state is indicted for war crimes, crimes against humanity, let's say. What happens next? Well, he can't really travel, or if he travels, he has to be very careful about where he travels because he might be subject to arrest and production to the International Criminal Court. It weakens his position internally because his external foreign affairs position is dramatically curtailed. And the possibility of that affecting the internal politics of Russia and potentially a leadership change has to be of some significance. Now, there are obvious dangers attached with that in terms of what moves Putin uh, makes and uh, whether he feels that he has nothing to lose and therefore is prepared to act in a more dangerous manner. But the possibility of this being having a great impact is, I think, quite significant. Do you think that this could produce successful prosecutions, this process? It could produce successful prosecutions in a number of ways. It, it could certainly produce successful prosecutions for lower-level offenders who were able to be captured. For example, they might be captured even on the terrain of Ukraine itself, and therefore their their arrest uh, would be possible. Arrest within Russia itself would be highly unlikely, at least at this stage. But in due course, were there, for example, to be a leadership change in Russia, And were Vladimir Putin to be looked at as a liability and be pushed to the outside, the potential for his production under an arrest warrant increases and the inevitability of him being tried for these crimes isn't there, but the possibility certainly increases. It's worth it then. There's no question it's worth it, in my view. Obviously, it costs money to investigate and prosecute these crimes. It takes a long time. It's a difficult process. But it's a very important weapon in the armoury of international law and the international order because it has a deterrent effect on leaders and their conduct. It won't inevitably deter leaders from committing crimes that fall within the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction but it undoubtedly has a normative effect on the rule of law in the international order.
0: Dr Gideon Boas, he's a barrister and former senior legal officer with the International Criminal Tribunal. Well, in response to Russia's continued aggression, the West has imposed further economic sanctions, with the US and the UK announcing they'll ban all imports of Russian oil.
1: The United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We will employ every method that we can, diplomatic, humanitarian and economic, Mr. Speaker, until Vladimir Putin has failed in this disastrous venture and Ukraine is free once more.
0: The ongoing Ukraine crisis is increasing the price of petrol and diesel everywhere. And it may also increase power prices, particularly in Europe, which relies heavily on Russian gas.
3: Coal recently hit an all-time high in terms of pricing. We've seen the oil price bounce significantly, like it's gone up by 40%, I suppose, over the last few months. We've seen, and I say this in particular, European gas prices go through the roof. So European gas prices are eight times higher than they were a year ago.
0: Well, Gerard Reid secures finance for companies in the energy transition. He's based in Berlin and he's co-host of the podcast, Redefining Energy. So could Russian hostility accelerate Europe's transition away from fossil fuels? And what does that mean for Australia?
3: Although it has global impacts, where it really has a significant impact is Europe. And the reason for that is that Europe is not energy driven independent. So if you're Australian or American, you're actually in a reasonably good situation because you have your own energy, which means your customers in some ways are sheltered from what's going on in in Europe. But as I said, in Europe, it really is, I definitely would describe it as the biggest energy shock since the oil crisis.
0: In the 70s, yeah. Uh, The headline this week was the US and UK deciding to boycott Russian oil. How significant is that decision for both those parties and who can fill the gap?
3: Ah, listen, I would say blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't think that has a really big impact. And the reason is that you just get the, the, the Russian oil will go somewhere else, like it'll go to China, it'll go to India or somewhere like this, and we end up just buying from from another country. What is a concern, I suppose, is, is gas, because gas is really difficult to transport and it's expensive to transport. So just think of it like this. We want to transport uh, gas from Australia to somewhere. Well, the only way you can do it is with a tanker right and that's very expensive to do yeah you can build a pipeline but it's going to take you years and years to do it so In Europe, we have the situation where we've got lots of gas pipelines, but guess what? A lot of those gas pipelines are going through Belarus, Ukraine, and ultimately a lot of that gas is coming from Russia.
0: So so Russia's kind of got the upper hand really over Europe, and this has been simmering a bit for a while. Um, Now, this week after those oil decisions that you've dismissed in that way, um, in retaliation, Russia is saying, look, we might block supplies of natural gas through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. So that's a real threat to Europe,
3: right? Without a doubt, it is, right, because the Nord Stream pipeline is very important in terms of getting gas in from Russia. And so if it is blocked, but you know, if you do that, I tell you what actually happens. Then I think what Europe will automatically do is to say, okay, now we're just going to get away completely from Russian gas.
0: So the difficulty though is that it's it's quite hard to make a fast transition, isn't it? I mean, if Europe was to take the high ground and say, That's it, we're we're stopping all supply of Russian gas into Europe, what are its options to avoid a really terrible winter next next winter?
3: Okay, so the first thing is you need to import as much as you can, right? So that means LNG in particular. Um, The issue with uh, LNG is most of the terminals that have free capacity are in the west of Europe. In other words, they're in Spain, Portugal, and, and, and on the French Atlantic coast. The second thing you need to do is increase pipeline imports from other parts of the world. That means northern Africa, Azerbaijan, places like that. But then I would add on to that that the other thing that needs to do is we need to actually look at how we can reduce demand for gas. And there's a a few ways you do that. The first one is you actually look at the electricity markets where we're using an awful lot of gas and say, well, what can we use instead of it? So, you know, one is coal, right? We have a lot of coal across Europe. And it really means, you know using that. I'd say secondly is nuclear. Um, the Germans, for example, are looking to close their nuclear plants uh, in 2022. You sort of say, well, in that type of environment, probably better off keeping them on. And and then really looking at as mu- how can you build up as much renewables and storage as you can, can in this year before the winter comes. That's the third step. The fourth step would be it really is really looking at the retail customer. I think, you know, you have to be honest and go out to the people across Europe and, and, and say to the people, guys, we need to now begin to start saving energy. Go, you know, cut, reduce the temperature in your homes one, two degrees, do that, put on a pullover. And you might think these are small things, but they have a huge impact in terms of gas demand. But it requires... Europe to come together and I mean politically and as, as a people to understand and sort of say okay we are going to do this and we're going to do this together and we're going to get through it that's how you sort it out short term now long term is a completely different thing because r- the reality is that might help us for a year, year and a half but then what happens after that right mm-hmm. and that means we're going to have to invest in, in, in fossil fuel infrastructure that we probably didn't want to do because you know we're trying to decarbonize. But that's that's And you're doing that temporarily, but the second thing is you really need to look at electrifying the whole of society because electrification is the only viable alternative to burning fossil fuels, whether that's in a car or for heat in a home and stuff like that. So this this is why we come up with this way, rewiring Europe. That's what we have to do.
0: Now, you know, the price crunch in energy is hitting every country, but an energy exporter like Australia is seeing the chance to fill some gaps with gas or coal, Um, but is Australia going to face both opportunities and also pressures to match that transition that's going on elsewhere?
3: Australia's in the lucky position which it has abundant natural resources And, and that starts with sun, that starts really with the weather, it starts with wind and then it goes to fossil fuels and then it goes to mining materials and stuff like that. So Australia's in a really, really lucky position and what it can do short term is without a doubt help not just Europe, but actually just make sure that there is enough coal and natural gas in the market to make sure that prices don't continue to be at these crazy levels. Because I'm talking from a European perspective about European prices going up, and it's a little bit sort of, we don't like it, but we can live with it. But I tell you what, if you look at the impact that all these prices have on com- on other commodities, soft commodities like wheat, corn, corn, other foodstuffs, that's really, really going to have a very negative impact across, in particular, the developing world mm. and the, the poorer part of our world. So I think, it's, I think it's in the interest of everybody to really make sure that we get as much fossil fuels out there over the next 12 to 18 months to deal with this crisis, um, because otherwise this crisis is just going to expand across the world and that's not good for anybody. Right, but
0: also really work hard on that energy transition for the longer term, medium to long term. Well,
3: well, well the energy tra- let's be let's be clear. I suppose when I reflect on it, we this is really our third fossil fuel crisis over the last 50 years and I look at it and go, well what have we learned? We we really have not gone away from fossil fuels quick enough, which is why we have this issue now. And we, the only way to deal with this long term is to move away from fossil fuels. And this is not about the environment. This is about geopolitics at this point in time. And I would say is from a European perspective where we don't have a lot of fossil fuels in the ground, the only choice we have from an energy security point of view is to have our own energy. And that's true renewables, right? Yeah. Maybe in nuclear in that as well. Uh, but th- that's what you have to do. But also the impact of that is, which is really good, is this is really good for the environment. Uh, it's good, obviously, from a carbon point of view, from a climate change point, but it's also from a pollution point of view. So so they're the, they're the positive things of this. And, and the other thing which is really good is that renewables are the lowest cost way to generate electricity. And that's very important because... I, I'm, I'm totally convinced that the way to go going forward is to electrify and do this as quickly as possible, and, and I also realise that it will be good for the economy. So the issue I would say from an Australian point of view is, if you don't embrace those changes going on, then what you end up with is a disadvantage going forward, an economic disadvantage. And the good news is, you sort of, from the outside of looking at Australia, is that every single con- residential consumer is putting solar on their rooftops. Why? because of economics, right? And it's, and, it, and it comes down to that. Economics sort of wins at the end of the day.
0: Gerard Reid, he's an energy transition financier. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And while you're there, you might want to check a new weekday podcast with Samantha Hawley. It's called ABC News Daily. This week is produced by Madeline Jenner, Bridget Fitzgerald, Will Ockenden and me, Linda Mottram. Have a good weekend.